I'm enjoying the silence. As you all are aware by now, tomorrow we'll be changing the format a bit of the retreat. We'll still be on retreat, but yet we will be bringing in periods of talking and listening and relating to each other and sharing. So tonight I'd like to talk about uh, skillful speech and ways that we can practice it in our daily lives and obviously also in the next few days. The next few days are a great practice period for skillful speech because you have all this momentum of mindfulness that you've built up on the retreat and you still have the container of the retreat. There's still um, some structure that will be supporting you uh, in your exploration. So great time to really explore deeply this practice of speaking and listening and how to do it more skillfully. Skillful or wise speech is a very important part of the Buddhist path. As Annie explained the other night, it's one of the eight steps in the Noble Eightfold Path. And I've always found it interesting that one of the steps, uh, skillful or wise action, has three of the precepts, and speech gets its own step. To me, that points to the importance and perhaps the complication of wise speech. It's also one of the paramis, the parami of truthfulness, which we haven't talked about much, but is definitely related to speech. And it's also one of the five basic uh, lay precepts, wise speech. So, as you can see, it's very central to the teachings. And I think this is because it's such a powerful force in our lives. It's such a powerful force for good, for um, wholesomeness, but it's also a powerful force for Uh, causing harm. So it's a place where we really need to bring a lot of attention. So we can look at wise speech as one of the paramis to be developed. We can look at it as one of the precepts to be guided by. And we can look at it as a step in the Eightfold Path to be practiced. So why speech is about using our speech to bring goodness and happiness into this world, kindness to this world, to those that we meet, those that we interact with. And it's about using mindfulness when speaking and communicating to avoid spreading harm or suffering. Speech is much more uh, challenging than silent meditation. In silent meditation, you're pretty much dealing with your own reality. When we speak with others, we have our own reality, we have their reality, we have the situation between the two of us, and then we have the emotions that get stimulated and triggered. No wonder it's so difficult. There's a lot going on. There's a poem from uh, Ryokan, the... Japanese Zen poet that I believe I've quoted before. 
And this is him talking to himself about uh, why speech. And it may give us a hint why it's so hard. It says, my precepts, take care not to, talk too much, talk too fast, talk without being asked to, talk gratuitously, talk with your hands, talk about worldly affairs, talk back rudely, argue. Smile condescendingly at others' words. <laughs> Use eloquent, elegant expressions. Boast. Avoid speaking directly. Speak with a knowing air. Jumping from topic to topic. Using fancy words. These are all the things to take care not to. Speak of past events that cannot be changed. Speak like a pedant. Avoid direct questions. Speak ill of others. Speak grandly of enlightenment. Carry on while drunk. (laughs) I just noticed that one. (laughs) Speak in an obnoxious manner. Yell at children. Make up fantastic stories. Speak while angry. Name drop. Ignore the people to whom you are speaking. (laughs) Speak sanctimoniously of gods and Buddhas. Use sugary speech. Speak of things of which you have no knowledge. Monopolize the conversation. Talk about others behind their backs. Speak with conceit. Badmouth others. Chant prayers ostentatiously. (laughs) Complain about the amount of alms. Give long-winded sermons. Speak affectedly like an artist. Speak affectedly like a team master. Wow, that's a long list. It kind of points to how complicated speech is, how many places where we can bring mindfulness. Well, the Buddha made it a little easier than, than that long list. He actually named four considerations that we... Uh, are aware of inner speech in order to help us be more mindful and to avoid causing suffering. So it's really, it's great to just remember this list of four and, uh, and you're on your way. So the first of the four is uh, to refrain from lying. So don't speak that which is not true. Or framed more positively, we make the commitment to tell the truth. When we lie, we make the world a less safe place for others, for everyone, because people feel like they can't trust us, and so therefore they have more fear in their lives and in their interactions with us. When we speak the truth, we make the world a safer place. People can relax because they can trust us. The stress caused by lying also makes our lives much more complicated and tense as we have to keep track of all the lies that we told and remember the stories surrounding these lies. It's actually quite stressful. A number of years ago, I bought a car, and I bought it at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And I was considering having um, greater coverage on this new car than the old car. And my insurance agent said I could think about it over the weekend and 
tell her on Monday morning. I don't remember exactly how things happened, but during that weekend, uh, my goddaughter uh, shattered the windshield by accident, of course. And so I called the insurance agent on Monday morning, and if I would tell a couple of lies, she said, I could get that covered over the weekend. And she was fine with that. Um, I can't remember exactly what the lies were, but I remember it was a little bit complicated about something about, I, just, I can't even remember. So I told her, no, that I wasn't going to do that. And um, I, I, I thought about it. I thought about the stress of, of telling these lies and then having to make sure I told the adjuster the right thing at the, in the right order. And uh, just the stress of that didn't seem worth it. Um, on top of it, I got the... She was quite shocked, actually. She, I heard her on the phone tell everybody else in the office that I wouldn't lie, that she, that she thought that that was quite surprising, actually. Lie detector tests uh, measure stress level. It's stressful to lie. The mind has to carry out a bunch of uh, complex tasks in order to deceive, to deceive somebody else. And so the stress of this is picked up by lie detector tests by measuring uh, subtle changes in heart rate, muscle tension, blood pressure, sweating. In a scientific study, it was found that folks who told fewer lies complained less of headaches, less stress. So the Buddha was very specific about what a lie was, what composed a lie, and there's four factors. There's the lie itself, there's the intent to deceive, there's the effort in making the lie, and there's the act of saying the lie. And then it's worse if you're successful and people believe you, if people believe the lie. That's like heavier karma than if you weren't so good at it. <laughs> I find this fascinating, just the, the detail of what this means. The Buddha is said to have never told a lie in all of the eons of his rebirths and the Jataka tales, uh, all the eons and eons of rebirths to become a Buddha, to develop all the qualities to become a Buddha, it's said that he never told a lie that it was that important. Maybe every generation says this, but it seems like telling the truth is becoming less valued in our society. I read recently that the average American tile lies three or four times a day. Maybe my standards are really high, but sometimes I hear on the radio they will be... Uh, They'll say, up next, and they'll say, like, some artist that's going to play next. And then they play, like, five commercials, and then the artist. I feel deceived. <laughs> but they all do it now. I've noticed this in, like, the last three or four years. So they're actually not telling us the truth. They're saying that this is up next, but it's not. There's actually a lot of commercials that are up next. Is it ever okay to lie? 
This is a question that comes up for folks. What if, what if your friend cut her hair and you didn't like her new haircut and she asked you, how do you like the new haircut? What do you say? What do you do? I always try to find a, a way to tell the truth and to also be kind. Perhaps that length looks good on you, but I liked it when it, or I think it straighters better than curly, <laughs> whatever. There's different ways that we hold ethical dilemmas. One way that uh, the precepts, for example, can be held is that they're absolute laws, that you just don't break them. So that's one way of, of holding ethical um, dilemmas are moral, uh, hold moral dilemmas is there's absolute laws and you don't, you don't break them. Another way is that we look at the context of the situation and we decide what will cause the least amount of harm. And perhaps those two won't always have the same answer. I spent a good amount of time a few years ago, a number of years ago, just reading books about decision-making around morality. I was really interested in this subject. There was a great book called Moral Fitness, and it was all about different ways that we might make decisions uh, about what's the right thing to do. One In this book, they had this one predicament that actually happened to a, uh, a police a police policeman, there was a truck driver and his truck went off the road or something like that. Anyway, the truck driver was stuck in the truck and it was on fire. And the policeman arrived and the person, the truck driver asked the policeman, please, you know, put me out of my misery. I'm, I'm going to burn here. And the policeman was like, he, 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 uh, he didn't know what to do because he felt like he shouldn't that would be killing somebody. And yet the kind thing might be to actually do it. And uh, what he wound up finally doing is going back, um, in, I guess he had a um, fire extinguisher in his car. He went and he sprayed the person with fire, fire extinguisher, which actually made him go unconscious or something. It was like, but it, it was interesting, just the, the reasoning and trying to find what's the kindest thing. And how do you... You know, how do you make these decisions in a split second, too? So is there ever a context where we would find that the kindest or the most humane thing to do would be to tell a lie? Now, some people don't hold it that way. The Theravadan tradition tends to be more strict about the precepts being absolute, and the Mahayana tradition, I think, tends to be a little more looking at context. A number of years ago, actually, it would be close to 21 now, um, I was asked to be the godmother of a, of a, a, little, a little Cambodian boy. I was friends with the family. And they had been sponsored to come over here. Uh, the family had been sponsored by a church. They came, the parents came as immigrants. And so they would go back to the church for weddings and um, baptisms. 
And they asked me to be the godmother, which seemed like a really good thing to do, and I wanted to do it. And yet I had to go to the church and meet with the priest. And I knew he was going to ask me questions as far as, like, if I was going to raise this kid to go to church, um, which I wasn't going to do. And so I had this moral dilemma. I really was like, do I go to the, do I go through this whole thing? Even though the priest knew, he, he'd never seen me in his life, and he knew that this family did not come to church frequently. So he knew in some ways that it was a charade. And yet I was, I was torn about what to do. I finally decided that the, the right thing to do was to support this family, to be the godmother, and to go talk to the priest and to say what I needed to say. I still remember that. I feel like I paid some karmic price for it. Even though it, it, it was the best decision, it's like sometimes I still remember that, and I remember talking to that priest and saying that I'd bring this kid to church, and I didn't, and I wasn't intending to. And there's some karmic price, I feel, there. There's some weight. And I'm just telling you these stories. It's, 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 to, it's to encourage us to think deeply about these kinds of issues uh, and really to feel deeply inside of ourselves what's right and, and uh, developing our own moral compass, our moral intuition about what uh, feels like the right thing to do. Telling the truth is a, a relief. It means that we can relax. It means that we can allow ourselves to be seen by others because there's, there's no deceit, there's no deception. It allows us to truly... Uh, connect with others when we're honest with them. When there's dishonesty, we lose the the connection in those moments because of the deception. I think that, that telling the truth is also important because when we tell lies, we cultivate delusion not only in other people's lives, but our own. When we tell lies, we often start not knowing what is true anymore. Maybe some of you have had that experience where, let's say you go to an event, people ask how many people are there, and maybe you exaggerate a little bit because it seems like it was more important than or a better event. And then you tell the new number enough times that you actually forget how many people were there that you start to believe your own lies. And if our spiritual search is about connecting with the truth of the way things are, if we're lying, then we're really going in contrary to our, our spiritual aspirations. When we make a habit of lying, we, we make a commitment to deception and not seeing clearly. When we make a commitment to the truth, we're reaffirming our commitment to truth in all things, the the truth of how things are. So most of us recognize when we tell an, an outright blatant lie, but 
The mind can be very subtle around this. And as we increase our awareness, our mindfulness, we start to notice subtle ways that the mind um, bends the truth, you could say. For example, this uh, tendency to exaggerate. I've even stopped myself in the middle of Dharma talks when I say something and I realize that actually I exaggerated a little bit. I, I made the number bigger or made it better or whatever it was I was talking about. I, um, I wasn't uh, completely honest. It's great when we do this to really notice what's going on for us, ourselves emotionally when we when we exaggerate. Actually, any time that we tell any kind of lie, it's great to review the causes and conditions that, that led to telling a lie. Was it craving that caused us to tell a, what wasn't the truth? Or, was, or were you trying to avoid a difficult conversation with someone? That's a reason we might tell a little white lie sometimes is we want to avoid... Uh, a difficult conversation for our own comfort. How could we have acted more skillfully? So better than beating ourselves up for telling a lie, it would be to look at what the causes and conditions were and to look at how we can change them to support ourselves to tell the truth. Another helpful list from the Buddha around skillful speech is three questions to ask when we speak. Is the statement true, useful, and timely? So I find these three questions really helpful. I even for a long time had them on uh, the printer next to my computer. We're going to talk about email uh, communication later. Uh, Is it true, is it useful, and is it timely? And it has to pass um, all three tests to be uh, useful speech. So let's say you need to communicate something to your partner, and it's evening, and you know that he or she doesn't have much energy in the evening and can't discuss things well. Then although it may be true and useful, it's not timely. It's not a good time to talk about that. It'd be better to wait. This is true with me. I'm a person after 8 p.m. My partner knows that this is not a time we're going to have discussions because I won't be at my best. I don't have a lot. I'm not. I don't tend to be an evening person. And then I know that Saturday morning is not a time to bring up issues for him. He works a regular work week and Saturday morning he doesn't want to hear about problems or discussions. Speaking of the evening, and I also have a rule uh, not to believe my thoughts after 8 (laughs) p.m. It's a very useful rule. (laughs) Because if I try to make decisions or think about something difficult in the evening, I know my thoughts are not going to be clear. They're going to be towards pessimism because I don't have as much energy. So it's just a simple rule. Just don't believe the mind after 8 p.m. If I want to think about something important, I'll think about it in the morning. 
Another aspect of truthfulness is when we omit a part of the truth that's important to tell. So I guess you could call this lying by omission. Is our intent to deceive by omitting information that would be important for somebody to know? Information is power, and when we deny people the information that they need uh, in their interactions with us, we're, we're um, increasing their powerlessness. We're denying them the power to make choices based on full information. So when we're making decisions about omitting information, then we really it's helpful to look at the motivation. Why are we doing it? Are we doing are we keeping silent to protect ourselves? Then maybe we should speak. Is the motivation not to cause unnecessary suffering that it's actually not useful for this person to know this information? Then maybe we should be silent. So motivation's another really important part of well of all actions but speech. Why are we talking? What's the motivation? One person told me of an acronym, WAIT, W-A-I-T, standing for Why Am I Talking? (laughs) That's a good one, too. All right, lots on telling the truth. Let's move on to the second the second consideration. The second consideration with speech is to avoid speech that causes discord or division among people. And in Buddhist thought, this is some of the most serious wrongdoing that we can do. It can even cause a monk or nun to be expelled from the community. Framing this positively, we would say that we speak words that unite people and lead to the resolution of conflicts. So not to engage in speech that is divisive or causes division. I was thinking about this in relationship to giving people feedback that they might actually need to have. When should we do this? How should we do this? In one of the Buddhist sutras, the Buddha is talking to Prince Abhaya, and he says that if something is true and useful, he will say it even if it may be displeasing to the person who's receiving it. This information. I, th- I find this interesting. He said he would say it out of compassion, and he gave the analogy of a child putting a pebble or a stick in his mouth, and that one would have to hold the child's mouth and remove the object even if it hurt the child. I wonder if this could apply when speaking out against different forms of oppression against racism and sexism, homophobia. It may be true, useful, necessary to speak. It may not be pleasing to the person hearing it. And then, the Buddha said, it requires a real sensitivity in how it's done. Timing, he said, becomes very important then. That it be said at a time that it can be heard 
And I think of this timing as a way that we show respect to others, that we respect their vulnerability, even if we don't agree with what they've said. It's a kindness to consider the right time to speak. The third kind of unskillful speech is harsh speech. So we make the commitment to refrain from harsh speech. Positively framed, we make the commitment to speak words that come from wholesome motivation, from kindness and care. So harsh speech usually happens when our emotions are running a bit high. And in this way, all the work that we've done here on cultivating mindfulness of emotion can be quite useful. It can support wise speech. When we know how to identify what we're feeling, we know how to hold it with mindfulness, we have a much better chance of not spilling it out on others. I find for myself that a really good guideline here is how much urgency I have to tell the other person something. And the more urgency, read attachment, the more urgency that I have to communicate something to somebody that they must know it right now, I take that as a mindfulness bell to hold off for a little while, to pay attention, to pause, to see what kind of emotions happening for me, to wait and to communicate more skillfully. This is great with our with our family partners noticing that urgency to just let them know this and to uh, <laughs> and to use that I often use it as, as in timeouts you know I need to go in the other room go for a walk whatever to um, wait and uh, communicate more skillfully. The fourth type of speech to avoid is idle speech, speech that isn't useful. Sampapalapa in uh, Buddhist uh, Pali. Sampapalapa. It's great. It fits. Um, This would include uh, gossip and just talking about things that aren't so important. The Buddha listed 32 categories of unprofitable speech. This, is, this was compiled or is aimed towards monks and nuns. It's still interesting to read. So uh, precluded is speech about rulers, criminals, government employees, armies, dangers, battles, food, drink, clothing, dwellings, adornments, perfumes, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, provinces, heroes, streets, baths, people who have died, this and that. (laughs) I think that this and that is the really important one. Uh, The origin of the world, the origin of the ocean, 
Views about eternity, views about annihilation, worldly loss, worldly gain, self-indulgence, and self-mortification. The top recommended topics to talk about are modesty, contentment, seclusion, non-entanglement, arousing persistence, virtue, concentration, discernment, release, and the knowledge and vision of release, or nibbana. It's interesting as lay people to think about the place perhaps for small talk. And that small talk might include some of those things on the list of 32 kinds of unprofitable speech. It seems that some small talk, as it's called, is helpful for creating connections with others. So again, it's something we explore for ourselves. What is useful and helpful to talk about and what isn't? One time I made a, an experiment with a friend of mine. We made a vow never to talk about someone who wasn't present. Actually, it was a partner. It was, it was a person who told me about IMS, and it was before I came here, uh, the year before I came here. And for a month, we agreed to uh, not talk about anybody who wasn't present when we were together. Positively, negatively, just not talk about anybody else. Very interesting. It cuts out a lot of conversation. <laughs> it actually, I found, uh, it created a, a lot more intimacy on one level because the only thing you can talk about is yourselves. And, um, and a lot of more vulnerability. Talking about other people is like a protection often against talking about ourselves or connecting with somebody truly uh, from our own experience. It's a great, I I highly recommend it. Thich Nhat Hanh suggests taking the vow to never spread news of which we aren't absolutely certain. That could fall under this category. That would cut down on a lot of speech. Last year, during the, I think it was during the three-month course, I'm pretty sure, we were having a conversation in the staff dining room, Joseph and me and some other people. And we were talking about some other traditions. And I said something about, well, I'm not sure whether I believed a certain point that some other traditions made. I'm not going to get into the details. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know. And Joseph turned to me and he said, maybe you don't need to have an opinion. It was great. I was like, oh, I don't. I don't need to have an opinion. So I didn't need to keep talking about it. <laughs> so that's a great one. I remember that one a lot. So if we take these four considerations into account when we speak, it's clear that we'll probably have a lot less to, to say. Uh, and that will take a lot greater care with our words. So to refrain from lying, to refrain from divisive speech, to refrain from harsh speech, and to refrain from useless speech.
the Buddha in uh, one of the sutras explains about how this training and skillful speech is based in compassion. It's based in our care for others. He says, and here's not bhikkhus, right on time for where we are. Again, householders, so that means lay people. Again, householders, a noble disciple reflects thus. If someone were to damage my welfare with false speech, that would not be pleasing and agreeable to me. Now, if I were to damage the welfare of another with false speech, that would not be pleasing and agreeable to the other either. What is displeasing and disagreeable to me is displeasing and disagreeable to the other too. How can I inflict upon another what is displeasing and disagreeable to me? Having reflected thus, he himself abstains from false speech, exhorts others to abstain from false speech, and speaks in praise of abstinence from false speech. Thus, this verbal conduct of his is purified in three aspects. And then he goes through the same reflection for divisive speech and harsh speech and useless speech. So the idea is that we speak to others as we would like uh, to be spoken to ourselves. Thich Nhat Hanh has great version of all of the precepts. He takes the, the simple precepts that we've been chanting here and he really expands them and, and looks deeply into uh, many sides of, of each precept. And here's his version of this precept on mindful speech or wise speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord, or that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Such a beautiful and positively stated way of cultivating skillful speech. The other half of speech, we're talking about speaking, the other half is listening. So in the next days, and obviously in our daily life, we're going to get an opportunity to practice listening also, so we can think about wise or skillful listening as part of our speech practice. When we're listening to another person, I was thinking that it can be helpful to think of listening to them as our anchor. And in the same way in meditation practice, when we get lost in some other thoughts, we come back to our anchor. So when we're listening to somebody, what often happens, and don't make this wrong, what often happens is we find ourselves thinking about what we're going to say back, or we find ourselves uh, 
thinking of some rebuttal or some advice that we want to give or thinking of some, uh, something that happened to us that was similar to this. So we get distracted by our own internal story. And we can practice noticing when that happens and then coming back to really listening to the person. That that's our anchor. That's the anchor we come back to. And then when we listen deeply to somebody else, we're listening to their words, but we're also listening to what's not being said. We're listening to their emotional tone. We're really connecting with the whole situation. We've all been listened to at some point in our lives in this manner, and we know that it's deeply healing. It also takes a certain amount of trust and surrender to listen in this kind of way. There's a certain vulnerability in in just being open to what the other person is saying. A kind of receptivity. So we practice that too. So in this age, it seems that we can't talk about wise speech without talking about wise texting and wise emailing. So that's what's coming up next here. First, I want to remind all of you that we are still on retreat for the next three days. So I really strongly encourage you not to turn on your phones tomorrow morning and start checking your email. You'll regret it. Give yourself time to still be on retreat. Give yourself time to re-enter the electronic communication world slowly. It's really a gift to yourself to do it that way. You are uh, quite quiet, and you will likely recognize how quiet you are somewhere around 11.30 tomorrow morning. Um, and it's really a kindness to respect that up for, of yourself, for yourself, and to, to take your time with this re-entry. I still remember the first conversation I had after the three, first three-month course I did. I stood like this the whole time. I felt really vulnerable. I talked to my roommate. I had, I hadn't talked to her all retreat except for we had one conversation about the radiator at one point we needed to talk about. Um, it's okay if you feel that way. That's really normal. Uh, we'll toughen you up, as I said uh, the other day in the question and answer period. We'll toughen you up so you're ready. So as far as communicating through electronics, it's easier, I think, to communicate uh, unwisely and unskillfully when we do it through an electronic medium, our phones, our computers. There's a lack of body language, so we don't have the contextual clues when we're communicating. We don't have body language and personal cues, and also the, the, the fact that the person's not in front of us uh, makes it easier to say things we might, or or email things that we might not actually say in person. So we have to take great care. 
I also read recently that people have a tendency towards a negativity bias with emails. So they tend to read things more negatively than they were meant. They did these studies with uh, the recipient and the person sending the email. So one person who did this study recommended that if you have an email that you're not sure about, send it to yourself and read it as if you're receiving it and see how that uh, fits. I'm going to give you Rebecca's rules of skillful emailing. I learned just, there's only two. Um, I learned these a number of years ago when there was a, an organization I was involved with was going through a very stressful time, and the emails were flying. And um, I really made it such a, a big part of my practice to be mindful of emailing at that point. Or texting, this could apply to texting too, though. I'm not sure you can save draft texts. I think not. Okay, so rule number one. If you're unclear about whether you should send an email or not, don't send it. Just the doubt about whether you should send it is enough to let you know that you shouldn't send it. And Mara will have a lot of good arguments about why it's really okay to send this email. Don't listen. Put it in the draft box and look at it tomorrow. So even the doubt, that's enough. Don't send it. The second one is, if there's a word or a sentence in the email or text that you feel even the slightest bit of a toying about, that it might be inflammatory in any way, don't leave the word in or the sentence in. It's the same. Mara will tell you it's okay, but it's not. So get good at recognizing that little twang, that little twang inside that goes, hmm, that word could be a problem, or that sentence could be a problem. I learned this the hard way, <laughs> that I, I started, I would notice in an email that a word was maybe possibly inflammatory. Mara would tell me it was still fine to send it. <laughs> I would send it, and almost always that word is what would get me into trouble or that sentence if it was a whole sentence. The feedback I'd get back, that's, that's the one that would get the person. So those are the two that have helped me a lot. When once again, you're engaging with technological communication. This is a place, as I said, where it's really important to bring mindfulness. And it's also important because there's a way that, uh, the way electronic communication is set up these days, that it's addictive for most of us. There's a, um, most people my age are younger. I don't know about older. I'm on, you know, I'm in that middle range there. Um, I think the younger you are, the more that this can be challenging because the more of your life you've been living with electronic stimulation. I didn't actually start until I was older. They, they have done studies. Every time you get a, a little ding that you have an email or a text on your phone, a shot of dopamine goes to the brain. Dopamine is a good feeling hormone. But this is actually true. So we're conditioning ourselves to get these hits of 
dopamine uh, with our electronic communication. It's, it's really important to understand, to figure out how we are going to manage our electronic communication. Because if not, it's going to manage us. That's just how it works. I definitely recommend that we choose times when we are free of uh, cell phone, computer use, like here. Just to make sure we remember what it's like to have that experience. I want to make a plug for uh, precept practice in general. I love the precepts as a way to bring mindfulness into our daily lives. There's these five places to pay attention. And having them in mind, having the precepts in mind, reading them every day or remembering them, they can be little mindfulness flags that... uh, remind us when we're about to do something that has the potential to cause harm. And I find that being aware of them increases our mindfulness in general. So maybe perhaps we're about to tell a little white lie and then that mindfulness flag goes up, no, watch out, precept. And it, and it gives us time to pause and think, oh, is there another way to do this? Or perhaps at work we're about to take some something for our own personal use and we're not supposed to. A little flag, second precept, don't take what's not given. It reminds us to really take care with our actions and to have our actions express the kindness that we have developed here. It gives us some structure too to our mindfulness and to our daily life practice to have the precepts as guidelines. And you saw how we took this fourth precept of, of uh, wise speech and you saw how we could really expand upon it, look in depth. Sometimes it's great to choose one precept that you'll, you'll work with for a year and uh, really look at many different angles in it, study it deeply. Thich Nhat Hanh, as I said, has uh, really expanded versions of all the precepts. can be great to read. I think of the precepts like a, a rudder for our boat, a rudder, the, the part that steers the boat, right? They help us to steer towards non-harming. And sometimes, yes, causes and conditions will come up that will blow us off course, <laughs> But we have this rudder of the precepts, the intention to non-harm, that helps us steer again, steer in the direction we want to go. And the same with skillful speech. I laid out all different considerations for looking at our speech and investigating it deeply. Don't be hard on yourselves when you find that you've gotten a little blown off course, that the, um, some causes and conditions have led you to speak unskillfully. It's really, for many people, it's the hardest precept 
it's really challenging. And then we do the best, if we speak unskillfully, we do the best to repair any damage that we've done and to recommit. And we try to do that with kindness towards ourselves, not uh, judgment. So the skillful speech is a a precept. It's also um, a parami, so another great framework for practice in daily life is paramis. Choose a parami. Focus on it for a year, two years, three years. Just having that focus again helps with mindfulness in general. Two paramis that I've worked with a lot, um, generosity and patience. Years on each one. Finding ways that we can deepen our understanding and also, as I said, it just brings... Uh, mindfulness to many areas of our lives. We can talk more about that in the coming days, but if we didn't get around to it, I wanted to make sure I said it. So lastly, I just want to say enjoy yourselves in the next few days. It's really beautiful to connect with our Dharma sisters and brothers here. Spiritual friendship is a huge part of the path, really important. There can be a lot of joy in sharing together. But also take care of yourselves. You may notice that your stimulation level increases. You've probably already noticed that your stimulation level, your activation level of your system has increased. This is a a normal part of moving towards leaving a retreat. Some people find it uncomfortable. Um, if you do, try to, if you can, meet it with, com- with compassion, with care. Your body will be getting a little more revved up as it's uh, getting ready to engage more. Maybe even this talk feels like it was a little stimulating, talking about email. And if you find that you're getting stimulated, overstimulated in the next few days, you can just take a minute to stop. Feel your body. We can even do it now. Feel your body. What's the energy level feel like? How's the energy in the body after hearing this talk about speaking, about email? Can we hold that increased energy with compassion or is there aversion to it? Just checking it out. What happens when we turn towards that energy with interest, with mindfulness? Can we feel our seat on the cushion, our feet on the floor, our legs on the floor? That's another great practice when the energy gets high is Feel the feet, feel the seat. You can do this in the next few days. You're going to need to do this in the next few days. Tomorrow morning we'll have more information for you about how we'll do these transitional days.
It's poignant, this, this last evening of silence before we start speaking. We've developed such a community here, a community in silence and seclusion. The beautiful gift of solitude and silence. And then we'll have the beautiful gift of communicating. And yet we know it's, it's this transition towards moving home. Have a great time. Let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.